Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode of The Mandalorian, where we are talking all about Chapter 12, The Siege, which was directed by fan favorite Carl Weathers. (laughs) Yay for Carl. I'm so excited. I've loved, like, throughout all of his entire press tours for season one and season two, he's just a delight. He's such a joy. And I remember actually in the press tour of season one, he talked about how he, part of his deal for coming back or in having like a recurring role on The Mandalorian was a contingent that he would get to direct. So I know that this wow. is a really big deal for him. And he was really excited about it. And he's been so amazing online responding to fans and responding to comments. And I honestly feel like that goes a a really long way for the Star Wars fandom to see creators, you know, engaging positively with their fans. And uh, it's just it's just such a joy to, like, be able to participate in his joy, too. And I could tell that I feel like the tone of this episode was also really joyful in a weird way. And I could tell that Carl was having a really good time with it. Yeah, it it had Carl's energy, like Carl himself, (laughs) apart from the character of grief. Yeah, I think I remember last season, the best part is that like Carl spoils things. And you remember him, he he started talking about Baby Yoda before the season premiered. And I I think he was with, I think it was in an interview with Pedro. And Pedro was like, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think he said something like, yeah, and then you see this baby. Yeah. And he's got and this kid. was like. <laughs> so funny. I know. It's so great. He's, I mean, he's just so fun and so great. And I really do think it carried over into this episode. Yeah, this episode was also so written by Jon Favreau. And I just mentioned this. Most episodes are written by Jon Favreau. This isn't like a new thing. But in the past week, I've watched Swingers. And Swingers was one of his first um, scripts that he wrote and starred in. And I'm just really trying to familiarize myself with Jon Favreau's work. And I'm pretty familiar with it. I think a a lot of us are. But I had never seen Swingers, which is an older movie from the 90s. And I think you can really tell in that movie, which I thought was good, but maybe perhaps hasn't aged that well. I feel like you could really tell, though, how strong of a writer he is. And I get that in basically every episode because I I really feel like The Mandalorian continues to be really concise, really tight. Uh, The pacing seems to be really, really great. And I I don't know. I'm surprised by how fast we're like chugging along in this (laughs) show. And I do think that that is because of the writing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This week was a fun episode. I really enjoyed this episode, and I'm excited to start talking about it. Of course, prior, this episode brings us back to Navarro with Grief and Cara Dune, which if you guys have been listening and if you're not online, you know that there has been problems with Gina Carano online and how she handled criticism and, honestly, her treatment of trans fans in Star Wars and out like in general and outside of Star Wars and the Black Lives Matter movement and um, sharing like conspiracy theories about coronavirus and mask wearing and uh, just not great. Um, Yeah, I I, like really it's I really don't know how to talk about it. It's kind of unacceptable and it's frustrating that not kind of unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And it's frustrating that Lucasfilm has not 
addressed it at all. No one from Lucasfilm has addressed it in in any capacity, which has been really frustrating. Um, so I know it was it was watching this episode, knowing that she was going to be in it. It was I think a lot of us coming into it were like, are we able to separate? like death of the author kind of thing. Should we be? Is that the right thing to do? And um, I know I wasn't really able to, and I don't think you were either. Yeah, I wasn't either. And I, I'm just not sure how to carry forward. Just like Caitlin said, we just don't really know how to address it. I think we were all a little nervous because she hasn't been in any of the episodes of this season so far. And I don't expect to see her in the next one or the one after that. But I, I just want to reiterate that listeners of the show who are a part of the trans community that you're always welcome here and that I I too was not able to separate Gina from Kara and it was a struggle that said I was surprised with how much fun I had with this episode and I really do think that's all Carl like it (laughs) really was all Carl and I I struggled with it. I was nervous about it. I was sick to my stomach the night before it (laughs) because we have a platform. We have a podcast. I don't I just want to make it clear that that sort of mentality is just it's it's not welcome on our podcast. And we want to say that uh, transphobia will never be tolerated on the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it was hard because a lot of people when we talked about this when the trailer came out or was it right after the trailer? It, it was yeah, like yeah. all of this kind of like came to light about Gina over the summer, like before the season started. And a lot of people had a lot of different responses to whether or not they were going to continue watching the show, which is completely understandable. Um, and then I think there are a lot of people like us, too, that um, still enjoy the show and also still want to support people like Pedro, who is a huge supporter of the trans community and LGBTQ and all of that. And, and like the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, wears a mask. And it was hard to, to, I guess, reconcile what the correct thing to do is because I don't want to support Gina anymore at all. And that makes it hard. And it's hard knowing that we like really enjoyed her character, the, the character of Kara last season. But I don't want her associated with our show. Like, I don't want to talk about her at all, like her character or her work or anything. Um, but then there are people like Pedro and Dave and, you know, Carl and, you know, so many other people on this show that are really great and that I do want to support. So it, it's such a difficult thing to reconcile and know what the right thing is to do. So I hope that um, you guys understand where we're coming from and that we don't really intend to talk about Kara this season. Um, She'll obviously, like, we're going to do like a tiny summary of the episode and we're going to mention that she's in it because she is, but we are, we're not going to talk about her really this season. (laughs) So, um, and I don't think that, and like Charlotte said, I, it was really nerve wracking kind of coming into this episode, knowing that I've really enjoyed this season so far and knowing that she was going to be in this episode and that she just stands against Uh, so many things that so many of us hold near and dear and value in other human beings and how to conduct yourself as a human being. And 
um, it was it was really upsetting and it still is really upsetting. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where we are on that situation right now. And like Charlotte said, that that kind of mentality is not acceptable and it's not welcome anywhere and not here either. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. And I think Caitlin and I both recognize that a lot of people, not just Gina Carano, make up Cara Dune, but in this episode, it was hard for us to reconcile that. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to not let that take away from the episode as a whole, because again, like I said, I was nervous for it. And then I came out of it being like, well, that was a fun episode. Interesting. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. You know, and I, I still I think there's still a lot to talk about. Yeah, I think that there were good things in this episode. And honestly, for me, it's pretty easy to cut her out of it, which is what I intend to do. I will say <laughs> I will say there is one um, interesting conversation between her character and the New Republic pilot that we saw a few weeks ago. But for me, everything interesting from that conversation came from him. So yeah, I think that's true, actually. <laughs> I yeah. didn't really think about it from that point of view. But yeah, I think... What came from that conversation, if we want to talk about it now, is that, you know, I think the New Republic is noticing or small cells of the New Republic, the the leftovers of the rebellion, I suppose, are noticing that there are small uprisings, some weirdness happening within the outer rim. I'm actually not sure if this is the outer rim, but within smaller sectors, smaller towns across the, the galaxy, and they have to kind of snuff out that problem before it becomes a bigger problem. And I think that we know that it becomes a bigger problem. So it's interesting to see where we are in the timeline to kind of figure out where the New Republic fails and will we be witnessing that? Yeah, I think that the way that the politics or the I think that this this is always an interesting kind of undercurrent in Star Wars. This like the the socioeconomic differences between whole planets and certain groups of systems, like the core worlds versus the outer rim. And this is something that gets brought up in Clone Wars and in Rebels and Resistance too. And I think it would be cool to really see like more of this. I think it's it's really fascinating, especially given like how many political changes there are in Star Wars for the within like their universe for the past like 50 or 60 years there's a lot of change in leadership and it's interesting to see how it affects them and I think that uh, there were a lot of interesting tidbits included in this episode about that Um, and I think they are in the Outer Rim Charlotte Navarro is because Grief says the New Republic should leave the Outer Rim alone if the Empire couldn't settle it what makes them think they can I think I, I think I knew that it was in the outer rim, but then I just sometimes I get confused about the planets. Like, how weird is it that Jakku is not in the outer rim? I'll never get over yeah, it. Yeah, I mean that's, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it could mean like mid rim, but yeah. it's not it's not the core worlds, right? <laughs> so, and and something else, grief mentions he also when when he's talking to the New Republic pilot at the end, he says, you know, this isn't Coruscant. If you, I think he's like, if you ever, if I hear something about Din, which he's obviously lying, I'll send you a gram, which I was like, Instagram? Uh, <laughs> Hologram. <laughs> I know. But like when you say gram, I think of Instagram. Okay. Um, and he goes, I'll let you know if you're ever out this far again, which was interesting. And then the thing that the New Republic pilot said to Kara, he said, there's something going on out here. They don't believe it on the core worlds, but it's true. These aren't isolated incidents. We can't do something about it without local support. And I, you know, this just you think about local support, local elections, it all, it, it feels very real world, which is cool because I don't think we read a lot about or hear a lot about things like local support in 
in Star Wars, uh, at least not phrased that way. And mm-hmm. I think it would be really cool to visit a core world like Coruscant in The Mandalorian and see how it's operating, see how it looks today. I think that would be – I would really love to see something that's not, you know, a rundown, backwater, deserted, yeah. low-populated place. I think it would be really fun to to visit – to visit a place like Coruscant. ILM is shaking in their boots. They don't want to do that because they've, they've got, they've got so the, the volume. They can do I it. Know. It's already done. <laughs> but rendering that, I mean, that, there's a lot going on in Coruscant. It's, it would be a lot. But it would still be cool to see even the lower levels of Coruscant, like Sector 1313 again. How cool would that be yeah, to see again? I mean, we could go to Naboo. Maybe that's easier to, oh to my render. God. I don't know. Don't dangle that. And don't even bring that up <laughs> into this conversation. <laughs> I just, I think that, I think that I like seeing, and we saw this in, uh, in Clone Wars Season 7, too, with Ahsoka down in the lower levels, of course, not like you were just mentioning, and her getting a greater understanding of these different levels and what that means socially and economically for how people live and what their perceptions are of each other. And mm-hmm. it's always a good, it's always fun to see um, and interesting to talk about. So I hope we see, I, I like, I liked hearing about it and I hope we hear more, which I'm sure Same. we will. Same. Why don't you give a little summary about what happened in this okay. episode? So this summary had so much good baby Yoda content, really cute baby Yoda content. The whole beginning sequence with baby Yoda and the wires in Mandalorian. The <laughs> <did>. best. <laughs> And if you're playing the the game Among Us, the whole it was like Baby Yoda is sus with wires task, and (laughs) I I died. And I know our friends who were who were playing Among Us too. Everyone was like, Baby Yoda, he took too long on the wires task. He's the imposter. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are probably some of you like, what is she talking about? (laughs) Everyone is people who don't play Among Us are like, it was just a funny scene. And you know what? It was. It was. It was just a funny scene. A whole added level if you're a layer if you're playing among us too anyway so we get that whole sequence um like i said in the summary we will mention kara she there is a whole sequence with kara i think that was in the armor's place right mm-hmm. okay so in the armor's room there is a tussle with stolen goods kara fights some people saves a weasel and we learn that she's now the marshal of navarro it's very robin hood-esque it is, yeah. And she's cleaning up the town. Uh, Din arrives. They drop off Baby Yoda at school, which I am obsessed with the school. I can't even tell you. And uh, Grief tells Din about the station, the Imperial Station that's still on Navarro. They make the plan to go assault the station. Once they're there, there's lava. They find out about the lab. Mando jets off to go get Baby Yoda. And then the last, like, good, it's like a good 10 to 15 minutes of the episode is a chase scene with Grief and, uh, what is his name? Myroth? Myrith? It's not his name. It's his species because Jon Favreau just doesn't like to name things, I guess. (laughs) Uh, It's a Mithral. Mithral, thank you. Uh, there's grief, Mithral, and I guess the Mithral, <laughs> and <laughs> and Kara, and they do a whole chase scene with the speeder bikes, the stormtroopers, and that prisoner transport, which I remember seeing very prominently in Rebels. And mm. you guys know I'm not good about recognizing ships, so that's my only touchstone right now. <laughs> we saw that transport in Rebels, and uh, Din shows up in the end, very Han Solo, A New Hope. Esque, and they shoot the TIE fighters 
they jet off and then we find out that well we know Gideon is still alive but we get a a new scene with Gideon and these like intense what are these called they're not death troopers are they I, I don't think we know we don't know. Okay. We will we will talk about this, but okay. we do not know. Okay. And we find out that they are tracking Din and they know that he still has Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. And that's where we end. It's a juicy episode, let me tell you. It is. Just from the top, I want to say that I think it's interesting that this episode addressed something that I didn't even know needed addressing, which is where the stormtroopers came from in season one um, uh, with the attack on Navarro. I I thought that it was an interesting touch to, number one, I know that the economy of scenes and sets and everything allowed them to return to Navarro and use that set again, which is nice because I think that now we're familiar with this place. Um, But it was cool to kind of revisit this the the idea that there's an imperial base on the other side of the planet that has kind of taken on this haunted house kind of vibe where everyone thought it was abandoned or you know there was only, it was only manned by like one person they're not using it it's just a storehouse of imperial weaponry and we find out that nope actually it's not abandoned it is not a haunted house it's yeah. haunted in a whole other way because it is yeah. active it's being used it's a creepy lab and i think i thought that was really cool a really good use of uh, a touchstone from something that we we saw in season one and it wasn't even something that I, I you know I think that in Star Wars it's like I've never been like where did those stormtroopers come from <laughs> it's not something that I have never needed to be addressed but I do think that it was interesting that they chose to address it that way and actually it provided me a little bit more of an anchor of understanding where Navarro fits in in this story and I also thought it was cool because we've talked about how Navarro is a lava planet and the uh, we talked about even the dragons as the creatures in last season and how that uh could be a metaphor for their ego and i think that it's it's cool to consider that lava itself can be kind of analogous to the imperial base i think you can compa- compare the physicality of lava with the imperial base because when you think about lava and like volcanoes it's dormant until it's exposed it's dormant until it's uncontrollable, until it can't be stopped, until it's unbeatable. And I sort of feel like that's exactly what's happening with the Imperial base here is that it's dormant until it's absolutely unbeatable and yeah. in, until it's uh, exposed. And I think that a, a, a good use of tension in this episode was when the Mithral um, let that lava reactor go and just kind of explode. And I thought that that was a really good way to explore this fact that you know, perhaps in some parts of the planet, they've controlled this. They've they've lived on the planet without, I don't know, a potential lava spill or <laughs> whatever, a volcano explosion. But here we have everything kind of going wrong because it's all coming up to the surface at this point. Well, it's interesting because we have the lava river from last season. So yeah. the lava is still active and maybe there, maybe there isn't a thing like a volcano on navarro it's just like there just exists lava in it Mm -hmm. and the empire set up this station there to take advantage of it like a power source Mm -hmm. almost i don't know and then it could be set to explode like a volcano i think it would be interesting to think more about lava because it is something that destroys and creates Mm -hmm. and it you know it creates we have hawaii because of volcano exactly (laughs) This was mentioned in the art of the Mandalorian book that's not out yet, but Caitlin and I got an early copy. And 
they, they talked about how John Favreau really wanted Navarro to look like Kona in the Big Island, which is where Hawaii's uh, national volcano's national park is. And I think it it it's pretty similar to that terrain because he didn't want it to look like Mustafar. They wanted it to be very yeah. separate. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think it is too, especially when we start thinking. So on Mustafar, right, we have Obi-Wan and Anakin's relationship is destroyed and Darth Vader is created on Mustafar in a big way. And then I think it thinking about what happens on Navarro and kind of to jump ahead, you know, talking about the changes to Navarro, mm-hmm. um, talking about like the entrance, you described it last year as like the gate to hell. And I think mm-hmm. we associate lava and fire with hell. And I don't know. It's interesting thinking. I'm kind of wondering in this whole discussion about Navarro, like why come back to Navarro at this juncture in the season? Why episode four, five, what are we on? Four? <laughs> Chapter 12. <laughs> why didn't we uh, start this season in Navarro? Returning to Navarro, I think – I think it's worth thinking about why return at this juncture and in this season and what Din needs, the information that he needs. This is where we started with information about the child, where we got our first taste of what they were doing with Baby Yoda. And here again, this is where we're getting our next kind of big quote unquote clue about what they're doing. And I think I think it's interesting that it is back on Navarro and it's not on some other planet. Um, the little pieces, the tidbits that I think you and I have really attached ourselves to about the Mandalorians, Bo-Katan, Ahsoka, all of that has happened on other places. But for some reason, we, when it comes to information about Baby Yoda, it's coming from Navarro, mm-hmm. even though this is not he, where we currently think he doesn't belong here. <laughs> but this is this is our best source of knowledge is from this place. And thinking too about like what is created here what is destroyed here as a touchstone for din's character going through that gate he every time he leaves he he exits metaphorically through that gate with something gained Mm -hmm. in a way even as he's gone through these like big trials on this planet caitlin why do you think that the town why is it important to return here and why do we keep learning something new about baby yoda every time we do return here Yeah, I think that's an interesting and hard question because, right, like visually we can tell a change in Navarro from walking around the the town with the market. The gate looks different. The the stormtroopers' heads are gone, right? That was on Navarro, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And even if it wasn't, they just – like it looks like a happier place. Like I want to visit Navarro now and I didn't (laughs) last season. (laughs) But I I do wonder, and maybe it's just because this is where the station, the lab is, and right now this is this is the only – I don't even want to call it a lead that Din has because it's not like he was searching out information for Baby Yoda here. He's still – he's still like en route to Ahsoka right now. I don't know. I guess – I guess it's part of the conversation like we were talking about earlier, like with the politics and with the 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 social status of these different planets. We know, oh my God, from the last Jedi novelization that Emperor Palpatine oh had God. a whole the contingency right? plan. The, con- <laughs> the contingency plan is in the the outer like past the outer rim. We know that places like resistance, um, the Castellan is in the outer rim. The Empire is really kind of is hiding out here. And so this is just another piece in the puzzle of them. Like 
they're not putting all their eggs in one basket as far as keeping everything on one planet. They're really kind of spreading things out in order to make it. And, you know, this goes back to what the New Republic pilot was saying. Like, these aren't isolated incidents of -hmm. what's going on out here. These are all tied back to the Empire and what they're doing, I would assume right now anyway, in preparation for Palpatine's return as part of the contingency plan, I would think. And they're putting all these different pieces on different planets in order to hide themselves better and to make sure that if there is an assault, not everything is destroyed. Yeah, it's very, um, I hate to do this, but it's very Voldemort of them to (laughs) separate their soul (laughs) across the galaxy. But come on, it makes sense, you know? What's so funny about you saying that is when I was writing show notes and I kept trying to write holocron, I could not for the life of me think of the word. And all that kept coming into my head was horcrux. And I was like, this is not a word. I was like, what is the word? It's not horcrux. And that was the only thing in my head was horcrux, horcrux, horcrux. (laughs) There's a lot of weird Harry Potter analogies in in. The Mandalorian, like, come on. The Darksaber is pretty similar to the Elder One in turn in terms of like whoever has it rules them all, you know? And it's it, whatever. Uh regardless, I wanted to bring up the reason why I asked you that question is because I actually think that Navarro can be an inter- like maybe in the future could continue to be an interesting barometer of where we're at in terms of how things are going with <laughs> with maybe Din and the child or the galaxy or something because I think that in a lot of ways this town is very similar to a western town in a western movie you know it's it's yeah. going well we got the sheriff we have the barkeep and um, we have the mayor and everything's going great until something doesn't go great. You know, this metaphor is very uh, it's not as extended as I would like, <laughs> but I think that this town really does operate to me similarly as a, a Western movie does as sort of microcosm of how things are going. And I also think that maybe Navarro, it if we do consider that it is a microcosm of how things are going on the outside, it looks like everything's great. Like we have this amazing statue of IG-11. We're honoring the oh past. We're, we're, I know it's the best thing ever. We're cleaning everything up. We're we're stealing from the bad to return it to the good. We're, we have children. We have schools, all these things. But on the other side of the planet, there's this evil lab. And wait until that evil lab gets back into the town. And how does that corrupt? Is it... Is it really a facade of how things are going? Because to me, I think the Mandalorian thinks that I'm all good now. My ship's all all good and <laughs> I'm on my way to meet Ahsoka and everything's all good. I got my, finally got my contact. But by the end of this episode, we know that that's not true because there's a tracking beacon on the Razorcrest that's yeah. going to kind of shatter that illusion of, of everything's great. And what else is go- going to shatter the illusion of everything is great on Navarro? Has it already been shattered? Well, it's like I think I think it has. I think the illusion was thinking that it was that that was just an imperial base, and Grief's mm-hmm. whole thing was I want to keep the weapons off the black market. I I actually think it's very interesting about Grief, and I feel like this just huge character switch. <laughs> it was like, he ran a whole bounty hunter guild, and last season, you know, give up the child, give up the asset. What are you doing, Din? And now. He is obsessed with the child. He is now this, you know, wonderful mayor. I I don't really know what to call him of Navarro. And is like, let's put infrastructure. Let's get schools. Let's get rid of the black market. He doesn't even say let's keep the weapons for ourselves for defense. He just wants them destroyed. 
which I find I just think it's so it's a complete 180 that I kind of love. I don't even want to be like, that's not like he just changed so quickly. But I kind of think he would even as a character sees this new opportunity, relishes it. He gets to be in charge. And, you know, now Navarro is it's it can be a, a good stopping place for people and a place to raise your kids. good old town the good old town you know he's really he's really doing things on navarro (laughs) i feel like it's extremely star wars to be like a complete 180 and we're just gonna accept it and that's how it's gonna be because it's just yay joyful (laughs) woohoo i love this character it's so funny I, I know. It's I just, great. <laughs> when, he, when he picked up Baby Yoda and he's talking to him, you know, is Din taking care of you? Is he taking care of you? Oh, he said, yeah. He said, yeah. <laughs> he just <laughs> I have to say also, I just, like I said, I'm obsessed with the school. I love how the school looks. I love the joy that's teaching. And of course, my question here is what history lesson is she teaching this droid in the school? What are these children learning? That's my big question. And I am also kind of obsessed with the kid who sits next to Baby Yoda and is just, like, very weirded out by Baby Yoda. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, it's the truth. Everyone in that classroom, I think, was a human. So here they come in with this, like, baby, put him at the the desk. It's not even in the back. It's, like, in the front. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> and everyone's like, this is so weird. Because it kind of is. Hello. It is. It's not <laughs> a daycare at the school. <laughs> yeah. And then the baby takes takes the cookies. And come on, they were that guy's little snack. I'm sure he brought it from home. <laughs> so funny. Didn't even trade for it. Who remembers <laughs> that? You know what I mean? <laughs> an eraser for a cookie. Yeah. He didn't. <laughs> I I loved the school though. I loved seeing it. I loved seeing Navarro reimagined and taking this place that was besieged last season and is now a place for education and children and community. It's I don't know. I I really liked it and I enjoyed seeing the marketplace and and everything like that. And I liked seeing Grief in his new role of, you know, larger than life mayor of town and touring dinner around like, look at what we've done. Look at the school. Isn't it great? (laughs) It is great. It's it was cool. I really liked the design, too. And I it was just like it was in Sanctuary. It was nice to see kids again. It's nice to see kids in Star Wars. It's just fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think one of the things I wanted to talk about this episode was the color blue again. And I feel like we've talked about this a lot on this show, (laughs) but I think it's interesting that this is a color that frequently comes up as a contrast to the norm of what we, I guess what I would say is the overall palette of the Mandalorian. Sorghum we talked so much about the use of the color blue last episode was a very blue episode. And then this episode, we had a lot of pockets of blue in this episode that really stood out, even with the colorful Navarro. And I, I guess I want to hear like discuss amongst the two of us (laughs) why this color is picked over Something like green, because we've visited a lot of desert planets in The Mandalorian, and I think we're used to seeing a very green forest planet as the direct contrast to a desert planet. And you think of Rey in 
the force awakens when she goes i've never seen this much green in my whole life i think that's what the automatic uh contrast to make between desert planets and sand and like lava and the red and the browns is green but blue has Mm -hmm. really been the predominant contrasted color in the mandalorian overall i still think that it has to do with the darkness that is underneath everything I think that it's calming, yes, but just like in our conversation about Navarro being a facade, I still feel like this is a facade. I swear we're in the darker middle chapter of The Mandalorian and things are about to get crazy, especially because we're off trailer now. We have no other (laughs) scenes that we haven't seen. We have no idea what's coming. And I, I swear it's because of this like brewing underbelly of darkness that is both in Baby Yoda and in the galaxy and following Din. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The fact that the blue color, especially, you know, when we get – when we're back on Sorghum, that the blue of that – the drink was very neon, kind of very mm-hmm. unnatural. Obviously, uh, what was last week's planet? Thrax, I think is what it was called. Um, it's, it's like a, a gray blue, like the waters and everything. But then the blue in this episode, especially with Baby Yoda, it's that – it's it's like you caught him red-handed, but it's blue mouthed <laughs> and the crumbs on his mouth and it's it's him stealing, which is cute, but also and you guys know we had an episode on on lightsaber color theory last year, which two we, years ago, Caitlin. Two, it's two okay. years ago. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and there when you're talking about the darkness, there's this quote about the color blue from John Wolfgang von Goethe from The Theory of Colors in 1810, which I think parallels really nicely to what you were saying about blue and darkness. And he wrote, as yellow is always accompanied with light, so it may be said that blue still brings a principle of darkness with it. This color has a peculiar and almost indescribable effect on the eye. As a hue, it is powerful but it is on the negative side, and in its highest purity is, as it were, a stimulating negation. Its appearance, then, is a kind of contradiction between excitement and repose. I think I think that it's worth discussing this color because, like I said, it is the – I feel like it stands out so much in The Mandalorian overall. You know, we don't get a lot of true yellows. The lava is really our one note of red that we really had. Like we're not seeing a lot of purples, greens even. We don't see a ton of, but the blue, aside from Baby Yoda, (laughs) 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 the the blue really does stand out. And I think that I feel like we probably read this quote a dozen times on the show at this point. But I think that I think it's a it's very on the nose because we've seen this color blue in the episode last season. It was this place of respite and it was calming. It was nurturing. It was motherly to a certain degree with Amara, Amara. But this season, it's had, I think, a bit of a different connotation. You know, last episode was very murky, murky morals with who Din was trusting. We have everything coming out of the Night Owls with Bo-Katan. They had blue hues associated with them, too. And we know that someone like Bo-Katan has a very murky past. And then here... We see it with Baby Yoda, like I said, caught red-handed, but blue-mouthed, and it's cute, but it's also him stealing, and <laughs> there's kind of that little piece of, even like when we were talking about the frog eggs, like this little kind of piece of darkness that is within him, just mm-hmm. like it is within all of us, but as a force user, it, it can mean different things. 
I think it keeps coming up, not to mention that it's the poster color of The Mandalorian season two as yeah. well. We've, we've talked about this. It's just, I think it's something to keep our pulse on, keep our eye on, because it keeps coming up in terms of color symbolism. And I know this is something that the creators think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Even in our conversation last week about omens, and I, maybe this is a time to address this because something this is something I wanted to address. So last week we talked about how the planet Corvus, which is where Ahsoka apparently is, means crow or raven. It's a, it's a type of bird. And we had a lot of our listeners be like, it doesn't have to mean bad omen. It could mean good omen. It could just mean an omen. And yeah, this is true. It, it's not necessarily uh, an o- like a bad omen. Doesn't necessarily mean something bad. I brought that up because I thought that it was an interesting parallel to how perhaps like Ryan Johnson thinks about meeting your heroes and how that doesn't necessarily push the character that much. So I just it'll be interesting to see how this all goes, of course. But I do think that if we talk about Corvus and it meaning bird, and then the the raven and the crow, it could be. Uh, it's usually a symbol for omens. Omens could also mean prophetic significance. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean creepy or bad. I think that crows and ravens are also symbols of magic and destiny. I, I'm tying this to the blue part because I think that it's all kind of all wrapped up together where it could either go one way or another. And I think that's kind of the binary that exists in Star Wars the entire time is that there's this underbelly of darkness always and hopefully light will prevail. But I think that's obviously a metaphor for who we are as people and you hope that light prevails, but there's always going to be this bubbling underbelly of darkness. And in storytelling, there's going to be that as well. And I think that both of these things kind of bring up this, this, the fact that the Mandalorian is doing this tension really, really well, in my opinion, about like, you actually have no idea what's going to go, what's going to happen next, because it could go both ways. It could be really sinister, or it could be really joyful. And I, I think that, we're kind of in this in this weird part right now where there's all these symbols and stuff and we're, it's like, oh, it, it means like it, it's good, but it could also mean bad. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's this dualism that is presented. And that is obviously so Star Wars, something we talk about all the time. But we had some listeners even mention that and we didn't talk about this, but Anne Convery, when she was on our show, she even brought up the fact that she's super interested in birds and especially recently and how crows were of a really big interest of her of hers and I don't think we mentioned that on the show last time about that specifically and I I honestly think it's relevant and we'll see it it if it is <laughs> if it's not it's just a fun little note of um the inclusion of the word which I definitely think comes from a place of research yeah definitely and also as a fun note is that Anne brought Bo-Katan to her Star Wars dinner party for Skytalker yes. Star Wars dinner. So, and I, it's funny thinking how she totally knew that Vogue was going to be in <laughs> yeah, this. She's season. been watching Dave edit it with yeah, John on Zoom. Literally. literally. <laughs> so. so, that's funny. Uh, yeah. And in some of our, in our Patreon Discord too, one of our other listeners brought up that in, I believe it was Nordic mythology, Norse mythology, that crows uh, are symbols of, thought and memory as well. I don't think I got that the exact mythology correct there, but something in Norse mythology uh, with birds and I think crows and owls are also symbolic of thought and memory. And the convor, I think we usually associate with Ahsoka and that owl kind of uh, 
symbol symbolism there but we also have it in the armorer and with Bo-Katan the night owls obviously like you were talking about Charlotte but I think thinking about the the mythology and the symbolism that could also be tied with thought and memory also makes a lot of sense for where we're going and Ahsoka and her trajectory through you know the Star Wars saga and what she knows what she remembers and what she thinks too about what is coming what Din should do what the next steps are. There's no character in Star Wars at this moment, especially this moment in time, that represents memory a little bit more than Ahsoka. Yeah. She's been around for so long with so many different Skywalkers and was present at several huge moments of galaxy making, I don't know, history. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be I'm I, nervous excited about it but yeah. I do I do feel like I think that there's all these things kind of working in tandem together and I honestly think it's super cool to even go down this path of examination about what it could all mean because to me it makes perfect sense why this sort of symbology would be used um, when we're on the road to Ahsoka yep <laughs> where we bring in that conversation from last week about expectation and yeah 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 you know just keeping things in check and yeah if this is not my favorite portrayal of ahsoka that it's is okay. okay that is yeah okay. it's fine it is it is <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's talk about the lab because I think that, you know, the action was fun in this episode, don't get me wrong, but th- this is where you and I thrive <laughs> is in these kinds of discussions <laughs> that like what we had in the lab, the station that is now a lab brought me back to some imagery from the Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> which it, it did <laughs> was unexpected, but I enjoyed it more here than there, so I'll just say that. (laughs) But we get the, you know, during the assault on the station is when we find out that it's actually a lab. And this is when we hear back from the doctor from season one, Dr. Pershing. And that's his name, right? Dr. Pershing? Yes. Okay. And we get his hologram to Moff Gideon, which I transcribed it. Here you go. It says – replicated the results of the subsequent trials, which also resulted in catastrophic failure. There were promising effects for an entire fortnight, but then, sadly, the body rejected the blood. I highly doubt we'll find a donor with a higher M count, though. I recommend that we suspend all experimentation. I fear that the volunteer will meet the same regrettable fate if we proceed with the transfusion. Unfortunately, we have exhausted our initial supply of blood. The child is small, and I was only able to harvest a small, a limited amount without killing him. If these experiments are to continue as requested, we would again require access to the donor. I will not disappoint you again, Moff Gideon. Who? <laughs> <laughs> this was like the most information that we've gotten about. You know, there's several questions going on in The Mandalorian. What's up with the Darksaber? Why did the Empire want the child? What is Din going to do with the child now that he has force powers? And I think that this one, while I feel like we learned new things in this episode, I do feel like it it, it was always leading to this. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we just got more information about something that we had assumed was happening, which was they were experimenting on the baby in order to use and take his force capabilities. I feel like we always knew that because of just the way Star Wars was and also the trajectory of where things were going with the Rise of Skywalker, especially last year 
with the return of Palpatine and how did Palpatine get back? There was all these questions kind of circulating in everyone's brain last year about how are they going to explain that? How is that even possible? And part of me does believe that they're going to kind of go down that path because the Empire was always interested in preserving life. This is something that we saw in Rebels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with and even in in Revenge of the Sith. Come on, this was all this is all it was was eternal life and how to kind of harness whatever power that is magical in order to preserve that. I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening here, but I do think that we were all like. Yeah, that's probably what's going on here, <laughs> you know, and to even use words like M count and like midi- midi- chlorian count was, whew, that was a lot. <laughs> I, 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 I'm jumped. so, yeah, I, I think it's so cool. It's, it's going back to the Phantom Menace, really, of when Qui-Gon takes the blood sample from Anakin and they, they measure his count. It's, it's almost like that's exactly what they were doing on Baby Yoda when they took the blood. Also, that note about the fact that the child is so small and they can only take so much blood. Maybe they just need like a Hulk baby Yoda. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Okay, they don't need any baby Yoda. The, they don't need baby Yoda at all. Doing but... that, Charlotte. Why don't they just find a bigger baby Yoda? Yeah, I, my, why did my mind immediately go to like Hulk Yoda? <laughs> Not even Hulk Yoda, Hulk baby Yoda. <laughs> no, no uh, anyway. <laughs> I, I think it's all super interesting and I think we just, you know, ripped off a little bit more of the, the what's hidden underneath the, the outline, I suppose, of where this is all going and how this is, yes, confirmed that they want to use the force abilities of the child. That's what they were after. Yeah, definitely. It's It's like another layer confirmed. Like you were saying, I think we kind of expected things to go somewhere in this general direction and to have it more spelled out even now is very it's very fascinating and even it just this whole like speech from uh the doctor just kind of reaffirms how creepy it all is and you know using words like the donor and um, we've exhausted our initial supply of blood and the vol- the volunteer will mean a regrettable fate. And none of these things are true, right? Like mm-hmm. Baby Yoda is not a volunteer. He's not a donor. He was kidnapped and forced into this situation. It just – the question is always, you know, what else is the Empire doing out there? And this is all still – I think I think we're – we're all dancing around what is coming or we're we're in preparation for what is coming with the contingency plan, with Palpatine and the rise of Skywalker, with the First Order. It's all a part of this conversation and we have all these little pieces that are happening across the galaxy and we're just honing in on one very specific one with Baby Yoda. And is he the only one? Are there other donors? This, this is the thing because – Ahsoka could be a donor, mm. quote unquote donor, right? Yeah. This is what's so ironic if you really think about it. So if these people are the Empire like remnants, right, who would associate themselves with Palpatine and Palpatine's first order when he was an emperor was Order 66, kill all the Jedi. So remove most of the force sensitive people from the galaxy, right? And yet here we are years later and they're harnessing the force sensitive blood in order to get the upper hand which they lost 
it's interesting because I just think it, it adds a sense of tension because here we also have, you know, after A New Hope, after Return of the Jedi, when the Empire is seemingly destroyed by the rebellion um, and the New Republic finally gets the upper hand. And yes, there are remnants left, but the Empire is probably seething over the fact that people who use the phrase, may the force be with you, led by heroes like Luke Skywalker, who is a Jedi and goes around calling himself a Jedi. People know he's a Jedi. He's a myth, right? I feel like here they're using what gave the rebellion the upper hand, which is force sensitivity, honestly, and togetherness, of course. But let's be real. It was Luke Skywalker <laughs> and his ability to use the force. And that's that's it, right? So here the Empire is trying to use that against the good guys, and they're claiming it. This is, to me, exactly what the story should be doing and exactly what I kind of expected from the sequel trilogy, actually. A little bit more experimentation, a little bit more weird force stuff about the fact that the people that won the war <laughs> used the force. And we even see that in in The Mandalorian when the New Republic say, may the force be with you, right? Yeah. And they recognize that. it's They've claimed it. They've claimed the force. And yeah, the force shouldn't be claimed. But it's still, it's part of who the New Republic is. It's part of who the Rebellion was. And here, the, the Empire really didn't claim it before. It was faceless, nameless stormtroopers and Darth Vader and maybe some Inquisitors, but that program failed. And, <laughs> Dar and Darth Vader and... Uh, Sidious, they, the Emperor, they, I don't think they went around, you know, being like, we're super evil force users. I think people were generally confused about what they were doing. Uh, they were just evil, you know? Yeah. <sighs> I just think it's interesting. It is. A really perfect story direction for this moment in time where the force won, the good side of the force won. So how do we, how does the Empire remnants deal with that? They, they take that power for themselves. Yeah, the, the irony, you know, you kind of wonder how Palpatine didn't know this already, that he could harness, harvest midichlorian blood. And he's well, like... Maybe he did, and that's why Anakin exists. I mean, but who knows? why would he... I don't think so. This has got to be a new development, because mm -hmm. he would not have... Uh, just imagine being in his office. Of, like, he orders all the four sensitive people he knows dead. <laughs> Everyone with the the high midi chlorian count blood dead, and then you know three weeks later, Camino is like, "Hey, so actually we could use that." <laughs> He's like, "Well, I don't have it anymore." <laughs> it's like a robot chicken sketch. It's like, really oh man, <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> it really is. Someone's like, "Oh, I forgot to deliver this report to you last month, just prior to Order sixty six. Kill all the older Jedi, but none of the younglings. Yeah, yeah. And Anakin's those. like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that. <laughs> Keep the younglings. I thought you said kill the younglings. <laughs> oh, why are we laughing at that? Kill? We're so mean. <laughs> Still, it's, it's just funny to think about. Like, oh, oopsie. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> that was literally exactly what I needed was all of those Jedi aligned. <laughs> and then I, I could have uh, really ruled the galaxy. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so, it, irony is not dead in a galaxy far, far away. That's for sure. But yeah, it makes you wonder how many other people they have. How are they? Are there places where the Empire is still in control of planets where they're actively testing people 
as they're born, as children are born and testing them, like this could get really horror filled, like even more. You know what I mean? I sort of welcome that. I'm not going to lie. I know that's a controversial opinion, but I don't think we've seen anything really super science-y in Star Wars. The closest I think we got to it was in Rogue One with the scientists even present (laughs) Uh, and in Catalyst, the book before it, which is just a group of scientists, you know, working on the evil Death Star plans, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it would be interesting if Star Wars really pushed this because it's something that just hasn't been really done with the exception of, you know, some Clone Wars arcs, which even that was strange and weird and adds to this tapestry of like how we even examine this part of the Mandalorian because we know that like weirdness is possible. I don't know. I I kind of think it's cool and I would enjoy going down this path even more even if it ends in a point where we we explain the the cloning of palpatine or the cloning of snoke and i, I know that that's I mean, again controversial but hello it's in the movie and i think that we kind of can understand why a would lead to b yeah i think that that is what we have now yeah <laughs> the rise of skywalker it makes me wonder what what season two looked like before the rise of skywalker came out you know what i mean i I don't i don't think it was that different i don't know i i wonder how much john favreau knew i'm sure dave knew some if not i'm sure dave knew all actually uh and i wonder i guess like it would have been shared with john favreau i just i just to me the the core question of what makes this baby special and why would the empire want it to me will always come down to science like it feels like oh it would be because they want to use this child to further extend their life or someone's life whether that's super soldiers which i don't know about uh whether that's palpatine himself whether that's creating a clone army that's therefore a super soldier whether that's making a weapon that somehow harnesses this i think there's a bunch of different possibilities I think that it could all kind of aid to the overall narrative of the sequel trilogy, but that isn't necessarily like a bad thing. Or it, I actually think that like that was always part of it. Like, come on, the healing even was part of it before too. It was all connected. It's all connected. Yeah, I think the extension of life and the preservation of life has been a theme in Star Wars for a long time. Yeah. The, like, the preservation of Padme's life is how we got where we are. So, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not something that's new, but doing the the vat that we see of the bodies in, in this episode is probably, you know, partially directly connected to what we saw in The Rise of Skywalker. But even then, we had, like, the Bacta tank in... Yeah, Empire Strikes Back, which is a very similar vibe. Like these things are not, as the New Republic pilot says, they are not isolated incidents. <laughs> I but, think it's part of the visual language of Star Wars, honestly. Yeah, exactly. I think you're yeah. right. But it would be really fascinating to go super horror where like a body farm, honestly, of people with high quote unquote M count blood and what that looks like. And you think about the Rise of Skywalker and everything on Exegol and with Palpatine, I think, stands out so much for its blue color, (laughs) like that movie in general, but especially on Exegol. And there was, like, with the lightning and the fingers, it felt very, like, really leaning into the horror tone, like a horror film. And so I, 
it wouldn't be surprised if we continue down this path with the Mandalorian to a certain mm-hmm. extent. If if this is what if this is a piece of what Baby Yoda or other Force users are being used for, it makes sense. And again, it just back to that episode in Clone Wars Holocron Heist with the holocron of all the baby force users in the galaxy that Palpatine steals. It's important. It is. Caitlin's <laughs> going to say this until she dies. It's important. Me, me. Lux is important. Holocron Heist is important. Onderon is important. Important. <laughs> it's all important. It's Everything all is important. important. But that, it okay, matters. come on. That episode is important. It's baby force users, Palpatine. Like, yeah. That, that's why, that's why I'm wondering. Again, we talked about this last episode of what Ahsoka is doing on Corvus. Has she been there a long time? Is she alone? Does does she just does Bo-Katan just keep tabs on where she is as she moves around to different places? And I was thinking about this when kind of reflecting on this episode. And we like one Ahsoka could be a donor. There's potential for her to be a donor. So there's potential for Ahsoka and Gideon to have a we could see a lightsaber fight in the Mandalorian, which yeah very very interested in it is she guarding something and you think about you know the jedi holocron archives which we know had a lot of sensitive information on we saw them obviously in clone wars and in rebels there were like people like jacosta new librarians archivists in the temple we know that the empire took over the temple and basically took all of the archives from the jedi temple on coruscant But were there people, Jedi, who were there when Order 66 started happening that realized what was going on and started destroying, hiding, encrypting things like the holocron that we saw with all of the Jedi children on it or all the Force-sensitive children on it? Were there people then who hid this information away when the temple was being attacked in order to try and protect it from the Empire? and? What if Ahsoka is now somehow tied to this uh, and things that were like smuggled out of the Jedi Temple for safekeeping? It could happen. Thank you. I bet Ahsoka is protecting something, right? Just in terms of like when we talk about uh, Star Wars mentor figures, that's kind of how it goes is there's always like either something they're hiding or something they're protecting with – Obi-Wan, it was he was protecting Luke. He was keeping a watchful eye over over him. And with Luke, he was hiding the fact that he believes that he ruined the entire galaxy and the fate of it and his entire family. And I don't know. I just feel like there's there's always going to be that element of protection. Yeah. So we'll see if that comes to fruition in this story or if another in another story uh with Ahsoka. Who knows? I I just find it really cool that we're exploring this um i think it's really neat and i can't wait to see where it goes because i don't know i'm a fan of horror and a a fan of creepiness and weirdness and i think that so many people in the star wars fandom are like yes keep star wars weird make star wars weird the weirder the better and i think that this is (laughs) the pathway to do that is how weird can we get with experiments and the empire trying to get the upper hand and what lengths are they able to go to? And yeah, it's not it's not going to be pretty because it's got to be evil. And just how evil will it be? I think some of the imagery that was shown in this episode is really cool. I think that you mentioned the Bacta tanks, which I said was part of the language of Star Wars. But immediately I got, and I've mentioned this before, Shape of Water vibes from that 
be, oh my gosh, I'm just remembering this now. I said the same thing in the beginning of the Bad Batch arc. And I think the episode, A Distant Echo, when we see Echo and he's like a cyborg. And if we want to connect that here, Caitlin, there's a couple of ideas happening at the same time about like trying to use Echo, the clone, his brain to get the upper hand against the Republic. And guess what's happening here again is trying to kind of hack the body in order to get the upper hand against the new Republic. There's a link. <laughs> that oh, I forgot about that whole thing where he was rigged up. That was hard to watch. It was creepy it and was it was creepy. scary. But I re- I remember being like this design of the way it looks and everything was so well thought out. And I, I mean, hello, Dave Filoni. I know that he was working on that at the same time as this. So I'm sure those things kind of feed all together. He's you know, busy. yeah, he's he's a super busy man, and. <laughs> Everything kind of uh, layers on top of each other when you when you start thinking about Devoloni's works and everything. And I I just remember that being super like really similarly framed to The Shape of Water. And this too with the lighting and everything, you can't even really make out the bodies that were inside yeah. of those tanks. You didn't you couldn't tell where the head was, what what was happening there. Unlike in the Rise of Skywalker, when you see the Snokes everywhere, yeah. you can clearly see the Snokes. So they've they've made progress in thirty years. <laughs> Great, <laughs> but a yeah. warning, like a word of warning, is that they are not making any progress here. Or maybe they are. I don't know. Let's talk about that for a second because the ending scene with Gideon, I cannot make out what those droids or whatever droids or soldiers or whatever that Gideon is in the hallway with. Like, what is that? Are those? For a second, I was like, are those like mini Darth Vader's? What am I looking at here? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think, you know, if we think about Dr. Pershing's conversation where he was like the first volunteer was good for a fortnight and then their body rejected the blood. Was this uh-huh. Baby Yoda's transfusion? Was this Baby Yoda's count? Is it a problem of doing, you know – a different species like does it have to be a human force user with a high m count so maybe these whatever we're seeing in at the end of the episode have are successful experiments but they lost that quote unquote donor i don't know yeah i don't really know what we saw either but it <laughs> makes me nervous <laughs> yeah it makes me nervous too i mean a lot of people you know Caitlin and I are not familiar with the video game age of the 90s and the early 2000s. We're not very no. familiar with video games. This is something we're very honest about on the show. So after we watch the episode, we're like, wow, wasn't that crazy? And then I go online and everyone's like, Dark Empire, the video game, cyborg, cyborg stormtroopers. And I'm like, I'm just jiving over here with like the weird science. And <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I don't know. I was overwhelmed, I think, by the linkage and I think that there's definitely something there I'm not saying there's not I just think that if we want to strip it all the way down to what it is is that yeah maybe the empire wants to create super soldiers I don't know how I feel about that but maybe they do and maybe those are the super soldiers or maybe we're getting a general grievous situation like an improved general grievous situation where that's like a you know grievous was you know part creature and then became droid man you know and he has like a beating heart and stuff. We saw that in Revenge of the Sith. Super gross. 
but yeah. will <laughs> will that be what's happening here? Maybe that didn't work. Are those things droids? Can droids become force sensitive? That is a weird question, <laughs> but well, is it possible? We've we actually had, talked about this before. Yeah, because we had the uh, everything in last shot. Yes, uh, a whole that. That's horror. <laughs> in last yeah, shot. Horror in Star Wars. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we've seen these things. Different versions of this have already happened, and it's just they're refining it right now. Yeah, I mean, even if you want to think about in the Force Awakens, there's that line where Kylo Ren and Hux are talking about the the stormtrooper program. They're talking about Finn. Kylo goes, "Are you sure that we shouldn't use a clone army?" And Hux is like, "No, my men are exceptionally trained." And blah 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 blah. Right. And I remember as a major prequel fan being like, "Oh my god, the clone army!" But maybe we can recontextualize that line a little bit. <laughs> And be like, maybe they're making a clone army here with force sensitivity and it doesn't necessarily work. So maybe his line there was, should we revi- like revitalize that clone army aspect? And then maybe somehow in the first order in the future with the Stormtrooper program, they were like, no, we'll just take regular kids, I suppose, and make them into into soldiers that we can train from birth versus you know, injecting someone with like a transfusion of force sensitive blood is just too complicated. Why not just train them from birth? I mean, all this is horrifying, obviously. Well, it's like they, it was like there wasn't enough, there's not enough supply of M count blood to do a whole yeah. army. So we're so going to, 30 pivot. years later, it's we're like, gonna, oh, let's just pivot. Yeah, yeah. we're going to save all that for Palpatine and train people like Finn from birth, kidnap them mm-hmm. and train mm-hmm. them from birth and brainwash them. Yeah, little did they know that Finn was force sensitive. They could have just done that. Little, little did we all know. <laughs> little did we all know. But I, I think that it's just uh, an interesting point of view to think about in terms of the timeline about what the first order. If this is really even the first order, I mean, I think this is just a, a defunct, um, not defunct, but remnant empire cell. I don't think we're even at first order lengths at this point we're really dealing with the contingency plan when we talk about empire the empire and palpatine dying and what that means for the future of the empire and everyone kind of dealing with what happens then you know like we're not in the shiny new first order cruisers or anything we're using old bases old stuff you know i wonder if at some point in the mandalorian We'll pass the we'll you know we'll see the beginnings of Starkiller Base, which we talked about earlier this season too. So, I would love still, to see that. Still potential for that. Yeah, I think that can, that those sort of connections, I think, are. Uh, this is again controversial, I know, but really good for contextualizing the sequel trilogy, which still to me stands as completely separate from the original six movies with Rebels and Clone Wars as well. I feel like there's still a huge chunk of time that needs to be filled in in order to contextualize that. Um, I think yeah. it all obviously all makes sense, but there's just a lot to fill in and we haven't really filled it in yet, you know? Yeah, we're still getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. And it's going to take time. I recognize that. But even just a, a linkage there to the sequel trilogy in some way would go a long way, I do think. I think that, you know, Millions and millions of people are watching The Mandalorian, and their context of Star Wars could be anywhere from like us, or this is their first Star Wars piece. So having the sort of linkage throughout all of the prequels, the original trilogy, and the sequels, I think, would be great. And it's already happening. I'm not saying it's not. Yeah. But 
even more name recognizable pieces more. would be great. More, more, give me more. More. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I'm next week it's coming. Yeah. Guys, so I think we're gonna get a lot of connection next week. <laughs> I mean, let's just before we because I think we're winding down a little bit here, but I just want to like give like a moment of recognition to the fact that the midichlorians continue to be very extremely canon. <laughs> and I know that they're 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 so George Lucas that it's great that they're brought back in just continuously. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there there was such a subject of fan backlash. Mm-hmm. I, I never understood it, but I, I guess I sort of understand it. But I they're, they're they're back and we're not calling them midi chlorians anymore it's m count it's, it's way M-count. more refined <laughs> it's just it's further it's all psychological it's further separation from what you're actually doing if you code name yeah. everything volunteer donor m count you're not actually you're talking right. about what you're doing you're right you're yeah. so right but yeah midi chlorians are canon and they continue to be canon <laughs> which is fun <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode. I, I'm i awaiting, anticipating next week with a lot of emotions. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's coming. Black Friday, going to be here before we know it. I hope you all are staying safe and um, whatever your Thanksgiving is looking like this year, I hope you have a very safe and uh, lots of good food for Thanksgiving if you're in the United States and celebrating. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening as always. And if you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Crarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our Instagram and Facebook, wherever you'd like to find us. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, this is my five second pitch for you to go and leave us a review on iTunes because it (laughs) helps other people find our show and join in on the conversation. Also, I got to give a shout out to our Patreon Discord that really continued to make me feel validated in my love for Lux Bonteri. So you guys are the real ones. (laughs) If you're interested in being a part of our Patreon Discord discussion, you can head on over to our Patreon website and find out more about that. I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Bradley, John, John, Ian, Edith, Matt, Debo, Kirsty, Jonathan, Kevin, Tegan, Brittany, and Monica. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.